You're listening to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Today's message comes from Senior Pastor Aaron Klein. You know, if I were to ask you today, what is the most significant thing that is happening within our world? What is the number one issue facing the world in which we live? How would you answer that? See, to some, they might talk about uh, climate change, and that's the most uh, pressing need of the world in which we live. To others, it might be, you know, our population and will we have enough food to provide for everyone? Is it the geopolitical conflict that's happening around our world? Is it issues around human sexuality? Is it issues around political conflict, even within our own nation? You know, if I were to ask you that most pressing need, we could probably come up with a hundred different answers. And yet, where we are going to rest today is in this belief that the most pressing issue that we have to deal with as a people is what we are going to do with Jesus Christ. You know, when I think about that, on July 29th, 1969, astronaut Neil Armstrong became the first person to land on the moon to put his foot out And when he did that, President President Richard Nixon said this, the greatest event in human history occurred when man first put his foot on the moon. Colonel James Irwin, who was the eighth person to land on the moon, disagreed. He said, the most significant achievement of our age is not that man stood on the moon, but that God stood on the earth. Someone said that Jesus has come from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. That he put on humanity so that we might put on the divine image of God. That he became the Son of Man so that we might become sons and daughters of the Most High God. In a work that is published, The Incomparable Christ, this is what it says. He was born contrary to the laws of nature. He lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that was in his childhood. In infancy, he startled the king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. And in manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, yet all the libraries in the world cannot contain the books written about him. He never wrote a song, yet has furnished the theme of more songs than the songwriters put together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast as many students as he. He never practiced medicine, yet he has healed more broken hearts and bodies than all the doctors combined. Jesus is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords, and the healer of all diseases. 
Throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. And that is what we are going to discover as we start a new sermon series together today on the book of Hebrews. You know, I have to say, I'm almost embarrassed that for a pastor almost 20 years in ministry, I've never been a part of a church that has walked through a sermon series on the book of Hebrews. Nor have we ever done a deep Bible study dive into the letter to the Hebrews. I get it. As pastors, when we want good and rich and deep theology, we have a tendency to turn to the book of Romans, right? Romans and its apologetic nature, its systematic theology. I mean, and when you think about it, it truly is without question. It's clarity around sin and salvation and the work of Christ is unmatched. I mean, it, it lays before us the foundations for a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, unified church. Which is perhaps in some ways why as pastors we have a tendency to kind of veer away from this letter to the Hebrews. Certainly it is filled with deep and rich theology, yet for many of us as we look at this letter to the Hebrews, we can sometimes be confused. It doesn't seem quite as accessible. It has lofty and grand themes, and yet it meanders back and forth through these ideas of temple practices and worship, these religious ceremonies, and it talks about priests, and it compares Jesus to angels and angels. And as John Piper says, and angels. You know, there, there's something about it where we makes you wonder why in the world were they so focused on angels? Well, the reality is, is probably because people were beginning to worship angels. And so this idea of comparing Jesus to all of these Old Testament practices and even to angels and to warn them against that. And so I really have to say I am so excited for the opportunity to spend really the next 23 weeks together. <laughs> with you in the letter or the book to the Hebrews. Now, if you do the math, don't freak out. That's over five and a half months, right? Which some of us are going to think, oh my goodness, we're going to spend this much time in one letter. But here's what I promise you. I, I believe that this is not going to be boring, right? And, and I truly believe that it doesn't mean that there's nothing practical for us in it. I believe that as we spend the time studying together the, this letter, this book to the Hebrews, what we're going to discover is some incredibly profound and rich theology. I believe that as we study this together, that it is actually going to strengthen us in our faith. Now, before we dive in, it's probably helpful to give you a little bit of background so you understand if we're going to be spending some time in it, uh, well, what is this book all about? Now, Right off the bat, I'm going to tell you, I have already made some verbal miscues. 
See, I've called it a book, and I've called it a letter, but in reality, it is probably neither. It's probably not a letter, because if, if you look at it, there's no, it's not addressing anyone. You look at so many of the New Testament letters, it usually says, to so-and-so. But this letter the Hebrews doesn't have anything like that. It, it does contain a little bit of that when you get to the very end of Hebrews, but that's most likely because it was circulating amongst the early churches. We'll also see that it's not a letter in the fact that it does not claim any particular authorship. You'll notice when we read it together, it does not say, you know, usually it's I, Paul, write to you, or I, Peter, am writing this to you. This letter to the Hebrews doesn't have anything like that at all. So what is going on here? The, The reality is we don't know who wrote it. Early Christians thought that it might have been Paul, like Paul wrote it, but then as we've studied the Greek and understand the way in which it's written, it doesn't really match any of the other letters, and so most people do not attribute this letter to Paul at all. Others, though, say that it might be somebody like Barnabas, because Barnabas is what? That son of encouragement, and it talks about a word of encouragement here. Luther suggested that it was Apollos based on his training and location. Other people think that it was Luke or somebody like him. In fact, you can probably find 100 different scholars and you probably get 80 different ideas as to who wrote to the Hebrews. But the truth is, we just don't know. Now, the thing is, if it's not a letter and it's not a book, well then what is it? Most people believe that it's a sermon that it is a sermon that has been written down and is now circulating around the churches. In fact, in chapter 13, 22, it says, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written you quite briefly. And so if this is a sermon that has been preached or now that is circulating around the churches, but then it leads us to this. If it's not a letter, it's a sermon, to whom is the author preaching? Well, what we have to recognize is that the audience is most likely Jewish Christians who are living before 70 AD. Now, why 70 AD? Well, because this letter, this sermon, references all of these temple practices the ceremonies, and the priests, and the sacrifices. Well, if the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and and you would have thought that the author then would have tried to say, look, if I'm making all of these comparisons to Jesus Christ, well, this is the ultimate comparison now that these temple sacrifices have gone away. And so he doesn't do that. So it's most likely before 70 AD. In fact, what we would say is it's most likely second generation Christians because what it says is it refers to people who have heard about Jesus who have heard Jesus and passed it on and so when you think about that it's not that first generation most likely somewhere in that second generation and what we know is that it is written to Jewish people becoming to faith in Christ who have now are experiencing persecution persecution from fellow Jews persecution from the Roman Empire. And so what the author is trying to do is to remind them, look, 
Jesus is the promised Messiah. Many of these people may have been considering converting back to Judaism, but the author is trying to say, no, don't do that. Keep pressing on. Keep pressing in. And so this is a sermon that's really designed to encourage people to continue on in their faith. Now, some of you may say, well, if this was written to Jewish Christians before 70 A.D., what does this have to do with me, right? What is it that I can draw out of this? I believe that the answer to this is an unequivocal, God will use this to speak to this day and age. Let's be honest. We live in a world where there are so many people who are questioning the truth of Jesus Christ. You and I can turn on, we see the statistics, and more and more people are leaving the faith every single year. We can see apostasy in the life of the church and people who are walking away from the truth of Scripture. And as you and I know, even here, as Christians continue to be pressed in against what ends up happening as we begin over these years to perhaps feel more persecution, we too are going to feel that tension where we can either try to say, and especially Christians, let me say this, Christians who hold to a biblical moral ethic, right? Christians who just go along with society, well, they're not going to be the ones who are pressed in against, but those who hold to a biblical ethic. What do we need to hear to press on? We, we need to hear this. You can keep going. You know, don't give up. Keep leaning into the truths of Jesus Christ. And that's why we've entitled this whole sermon series this idea of greater. It's really a series that is all about the superiority of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, how Christ is indeed greater. But here's what I've come to see as I've been studying and preparing is that the point of Hebrews is not to say, look, Jesus Christ is better than Melchizedek. He's better than angels. He's better than anything else. The theme of this message of Hebrews is don't give up. And the reason you don't have to give up is because Jesus is greater than anything, than anyone who has come or anyone who will come. And that means I believe that what God is going to speak to us through the sermon to the Hebrews is very profound and still very relevant in today's day and age especially when you and I might be inclined to lose heart. So if you've brought your Bibles, I want to invite you to go ahead and open them up. We're going to be spending some time together in Hebrews uh, chapter 1. Now, if you don't have your Bible, of course, you're going to be able to follow along on the screen behind me, grab your Bible app, open that up. But we're, go we're just going to be looking at four short verses this morning. Hear now the reading of God's Word. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him and through whom also he made the universe. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And may God bless the reading of his word to our hearts and lives today. You know, I'll ask you another question. If I were to ask you what is a word, how would you respond? You know, what would you say a word is? Is it, is, is it simply a thought? Or is it an expression? Is it a, a form of communication? Is it an outward and visible or audible uh, spoken? Or is it something that is inward and invisible? The point is, you can't read someone else's mind. You can't know someone else's thoughts. The only way that you know what someone is thinking is if they speak it, or if they write it down, or if they act in some way. Notice, by the way, John 1.1 says this about Jesus, that Jesus is the Word of God. He is the outward verbal expression of the thoughts and the heart of an invisible God. Jesus is God's final communication to us. God has spoken to the world through Jesus Christ. This is why, coming out of Hebrews chapter 1, this morning we're calling this that God speaks. God's final word was spoken through Jesus Christ. It was Christ who was a part of the Godhead that spoke creation into being, and it is Jesus Christ who is going to be there speaking at the consummation of all things when there is a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, in everything else that comes throughout the rest of the letter to the Hebrews, we could say that it is God who is speaking through Christ. God speaks when he reminds us that there is no one higher, that there is no one greater than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the greatest spoken word of anyone who has come and anyone who will come after him. So if God is speaking, what has he said? There's a couple of thoughts to draw out this morning. Notice, if you want to follow along and take notes, that Jesus is God's final revelation. He's God's final revelation. What does it say in verses 1 and 2? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him he also made the universe. Notice that when the writer says this, that in the past God has spoken through ancestors and prophets, what he's saying is, look, you guys look to the Old Testament. 
You look to the Old Testament patriarchs and the people who have come, and God spoke to them. And so God spoke through Abraham when God called him. God spoke through Moses when he gave him the law on Sinai. God has spoken when he filled David with the Holy Spirit. God has spoken when he spoke through the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah. But notice it says that at various times and ways. Now, what that implies is that God had more to say. Each prophet didn't contain the final revelation of God. But then it says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And when you look at the original language here, what is so cool about this is that the word that is used to refer to Jesus means this, a full and final revelation. When God has spoken through Jesus Christ, it is the last word. This is God's literal mic drop moment. This is who Jesus is. But notice how it goes even deeper than that. In the past, God has spoken through prophets and through patriarchs. But now, it says that God has spoken to us through his Son. Jesus isn't just another prophet. Jesus is God himself. He is heir to everything that God has. Lest we forget, Jesus is also the one who has brought everything into being. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when you get to John chapter 1, 1 to 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then here, through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And you get to Hebrews. And in the letter of the Sermon to the Hebrews, it says that God made the universe through Jesus. And that it is Jesus that continues to sustain all of creation. You know, I used to have, I I can remember, I had a seminary professor who once said this. That if God were to cease speaking, that we would cease to exist. Now, we know that in our modern day and age, we probably don't believe that at all, right? No, no, it's the sun that's the center of our universe, and it's like the earth that's swirling around it, and the moon turns around the earth. We don't believe that it's God who literally causes breath to come into our lungs each and every morning. We don't believe that it's God who's literally causing the sun to rise in the morning and set in the evening, though that certainly is what the ancient Hebrews believed. And I believe that that is actually a much better way to look at it. That if God were to cease speaking, if it were not God who were causing the sun to rise or set, breathing life into me every morning, that I would cease to exist. See, the reason we can say that it's Jesus who's holding all things together is because, do you know, to this day, scientists still don't know why molecules and atoms hold together in the way they do. They call it intramolecular forces, which is just a fancy term, meaning we really don't know, right? 
But the truth is, as followers of Jesus Christ, we know who holds it all together because Scripture tells us who holds it all together. In fact, listen to what Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 1, 15 to 17. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, when God spoke, his final revelation was through Jesus Christ. God is not still speaking in many times and in various ways. God's finished revelation is in Jesus Christ. You know, we understand this. There have been many people who have come after Jesus, from Mohammed to Joseph Smith to L. Ron Hubbard to countless others who have claimed to have an additional revelation from God. But what we know is that Jesus is God's final revelation. And so when we live in a world that perhaps wants to tickle our ears and say, but God has something new and something more that he wants to say, we go back to what God has said. It is his final finished revelation in Jesus Christ. Second, Jesus is God's best reflection. He's God's best reflection. The first part of verse 3 says this, the sun is the radiance of, of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. This verse is so incredibly powerful and vivid to think of the fact that Jesus is the very radiance of God's glory. He is the reflected brightness of God. By the way, this is only exactly what the prophet Isaiah said was going to happen. You know, in Isaiah chapter 40, in verses 3 to 5, what does it say? A voice of one calling out in the wilderness. We knew that this was going to be, now we know that this was John the Baptist. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And what does he say? And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it together. See, the first part of this verse tells us why Jesus is God's final revelation. It's because he is the exact representation of God. There is no better picture of God than in Jesus, right? First John tells us nobody has seen God, but if you see and know Jesus, you know what God is like you know God's character. But I want to be clear about this because, again, we live in a world where there are questions about this. Jesus is not just like God, right? He is not just similar to God. 
He is not a lesser God or a created God. Jesus is an exact carbon copy, identical in every way. In fact, the word that is used here for exact representation is used to refer to an engraving tool or a chisel or a stamp that would impress a coin or a wax seal. What it tells us is that Jesus is the exact representation, the image of God. Now, for those of you who get maybe geeked out about, you know, Greek and, and theology and stuff like that, let's, let's take a step back and let's dive in just a little bit more because I want us to see that when we look at this, this word being can also be translated as substance or nature. This is where theologians get what we would call the hypostatic union. Now you're like, wow, wait a second, that's a huge term. Now, all I want you to see is, is this. It sounds fancy, but it is really just the idea of God's divinity and humanity becoming one in this God-man, this flesh, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not two different persons. Jesus is not divided. He is one person. Now, I would love to go more into depth with you about this, about the nature of the Trinity and the, 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 the nature of Jesus Christ and, and how he's God and man, like together. I don't have time to do that, but I, I wanted to. If you, if you want more, I'm going to encourage you to go to one of the ancient creeds of the faith, the Athanasian Creed. I wanted to recite the whole thing together this morning. It was just going to be way too long to actually do it. But the whole first part of that creed is all about the nature of the Trinity together, right? And then this second part, which I do want to share for you this morning, is about this nature of Christ. Listen to what it says. It says, now this is true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, lesser than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, not, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. And from there, then it goes on to sound a little bit more like the Apostles' Creed. But you can see this where it's talking about the nature of Christ. And I, and I know, you even read something like that, and it's still hard, right, to try to wrap your minds around. But what it should do is cause us to greater heights and depths of worship when we understand how incredible it is that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, that he is God's best reflection. David Mathis has stated it this way, the concept behind the term 
is infinitely precious and worshipfully mind-stretching. And when we think about Jesus, that is how we should picture him. Third, Jesus is God's finished redemption. He's God's finished redemption. The second part of verse 3 says this, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, how did Jesus make a purification for our sins? See, in the Old Testament, if anybody wanted to make a purification for their sins, they would take animals and they would sacrifice it and the blood would be poured out. But later in this sermon to the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, it goes on to say that, look, the blood of bulls and goats never took away sins. Those animal sacrifices only give us a picture of what God had done through Jesus Christ on the cross. And it makes sense. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What he's saying, what we're saying is that all of those Old Testament prophecies, all of those Old Testament sacrifices have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus alone purifies us from our sins. And when it, when it says that when Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished, the word tetelestai means paid in full. What was paid in full? Our sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The price for our sin was paid in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. And here's the thing is, once Jesus had finished doing that work, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God in heaven. What that means is that Jesus has set out and finished what he has intended to do. You know, we think of it, when, when a pitcher throws a no-hitter, right? When, when a quarterback leads a team down and scores the winning touchdown, whenever somebody performs on stage and sings, what do they do when they're finished? After the applause of the people, they sit down because the work has been completed. And this is what Jesus has done for us. When he has died and risen, he has received the applause of heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God, a place of prominence because of what he has done for us. Jesus is the redemptive work of God. And then fourth and last, Jesus has God's finest reputation. The finest reputation. Notice what verse 4 says. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. You know, one of the things that we've already said, we're going to find this as we go throughout this letter, uh, there are a lot of references to angels. And why is that? Well, it's because the people that were beginning to worship angels. And this isn't to demean angels in any way. They're powerful. They're beautiful. But what the author is saying is, they're nothing. 
compared to the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus has an inherited a name that is far better, that is far higher than the name of any angel. There's no name that is higher than Jesus. In fact, that's what we're going to discover together next week. In fact, a lot of the rest of this chapter has to do with angels. And so we're going to be spending some time talking about that. Verse 4 could really be the introduction to the explanation that comes throughout the rest of this chapter. But ultimately what I want us to see is that really everything else that flows out of this sermon to the Hebrews actually comes really from these first three verses. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to God in prayer. He is the only one who has ultimate power over the enemy. He is the only one who can walk with you when you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It is Jesus who is better than priests. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than anything that has come before or anything that will come after. It is Jesus who is God's final revelation. It is Jesus who is God's fairest reflection. He is God's finished redemption and he has God's finest reputation. This is what God has spoken. Jesus truly is the incomparable Christ. And that leads me back to where we started today. You know, when we ask, what is the, the greatest need that our world faces? What's the greatest issue facing our society today? It remains the same as it always has been. What do we do with Jesus? And beloved people, I, what I would pray is this, that you would understand today who Jesus is, his finished work on the cross, that you would say, look, I am struggling today. Maybe you feel as though you are beaten down. Maybe you feel as though your back is against the wall. I don't know what you are facing physically or emotionally or spiritually or relationally or financially. Whatever that looks like in your life, what we know is that God says to us through his word, you can press on. Why? Because Jesus is greater. God has spoken through his word, through Jesus. And what I'm praying is that this morning God is going to speak to you. And I mean, if you, if you have never known that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Do not leave this place today without saying, Lord, I know I am broken, I know I am sinful, but I believe that, Jesus, you gave your life for me. And if you are in a place where maybe you've just forgotten those old truths, I pray that today would be a day where you are reminded once again of the incomparable nature of Christ so that no matter what you are facing, you would know that you are not alone. He is indeed greater. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we know that as we spend time together in this 
sermon and this letter that is circulated. Lord, how we need to be reminded too of how you indeed are greater. Because sometimes it feels as though we are under attack on every side. Sometimes we wonder, God, where you are. And yet, to be able to look at Jesus, who was there at the beginning of time, who was, Lord, born into time, but now, Lord, who has finished that work and will one day bring about the consummation of all things. Lord, until that great and glorious day, Lord, may we continue to press in and to press on to remember, Lord, when we have those days where we're struggling, that you're greater. Lord, there may be people who are struggling here today who, who have never said, Lord, because you're greater, I can, I can persevere. And Lord, for those people who have never said, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins, that you rose again, that you defeated death, that you lived the life we could not live. Lord, may they not leave today without saying, Lord Jesus, would you be my Lord and Savior? And for those of us who are so prone to forget, who have hearts that are so prone to wander, to leave the God we love, may this be a day where we are reminded when we feel the temptations, when we feel the weight of the world, that, Lord Jesus, we can press on because, indeed, you are greater. Lord Jesus, you are the one who takes the dead and broken things of this world, the dead things in our lives, and you make them new. Would you do that in this place and in our hearts and lives today? And, Lord, in all these things, would it be for the honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by this message, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening, and check out our other discussions and messages. To learn more about Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's worship services, ministries, and events, visit us online at warsawpresby.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you again for joining us, and have a blessed day.